if uh, I were to say the name Frank Sinatra, would you recognize that name? Or the singer, Frank Sinatra? I read his biography one summer. And when I was reading his biography, he talked about one of the people that he played with, and it was Tommy Dorsey. Have you heard of Tommy Dorsey? Do you remember his instrument? Trombone, right? He played the trombone. And in the book, Frank Sinatra talked about one of the things that made Tommy Dorsey such a great trombonist is he had a great capacity for wind, for breathing. His, his lungs and his chest were like bellows. He could fill them up, and as a result, then he could play notes louder and longer. And of course, think about, you know, 50 years ago or more, uh, they did not mic everyone. They did not have the same kind of acoustics and different things like that. So being able to play longer and louder because of your breath was an asset. Of course, if I say the name Michael Jordan, everybody knows Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is one of the first professional athletes to hire a personal trainer to train him during the off-season. The guy's name was Tim Grover. And the reason why Michael Jordan did that is because he wanted, obviously, to have an advantage on the other athletes, but also to increase his wind, to make his breath so that in those moments at the end of the game, when he needed just a little bit more extra, he would have it. Breathing, having breath, stamina, all of those things are good things. This series that we are in is all about breathing room or creating margin so that when you need to do what God has called you to do, you have the space to do it. You aren't overcrowded and overcome with so many things, but you're able to take that breath and say, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Yes, Lord, I will do what you want me to do. For those of you that are following Jesus Christ, you want those margins in your life. You want to be able to breathe because inevitably, because of just the way life is, we find ourselves oftentimes overcome with certain things. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel has that kind of situation. If you open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6, uh, Daniel is a prophet of God who was exiled uh, into Babylon. And what he has done is he has decided that he would do things God's way. And he decided that he would dedicate himself to doing it the way God wanted him to do it. And when we get to Daniel chapter 6, we find him at this moment of crisis. This moment where he better have some space in order to handle what is about to happen. He had better be able to breathe in order to do what God wants him to do in this moment. In Daniel chapter 6, what has happened is a group of leaders have gotten together and said, we've got to find a way to get rid of Daniel. He's a Jew, so they were a little bit racist. He's also better than us, and we don't like that, so they were envious. So we've got to find a way to get rid of him. And the way they found to get rid of him is to look at his private life. And in his private life, they saw that he prayed to God. And so what they did is they came up with this command or this edict that said, okay, you can't pray to anybody except to Darius the king. And so if you are caught praying to anyone else, into the lion's den which, of course, you're very familiar with that story. So in Daniel chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, uh, that's where we are in learning how to breathe. Verse 10, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. So this morning, what I would like for us to do is learn about prayer. 
four aspects of prayer that creates this breathing space, this margin. So when the crisis comes, Daniel, you're going to be thrown in the lion's den. The crisis comes, you're able to handle it. So let's look this morning at four aspects of prayer that creates breathing for us. You have to kind of note before we get into that is Daniel's actions, right? In verse 10, there's no evasive action. He knows what's going to happen if he prays to someone other than Darius or Darius. And he does what he does anyway. There's no evasive action. He's not trying to get away from anything. He's not trying to save his own skin to dishonor God, to say, okay, in this moment, I'm going to compromise because it's going to get me through it. Instead, he does what he always does, and that is he prays. So anyway, the first aspect of prayer for Daniel is in verse 10. It says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. The first thing he did, or his first aspect of prayer, is he prayed confidently. He prayed confidently. And notice that it says, the windows open towards Jerusalem. Now, do you remember that in order for the children of Israel or the, the Israelites to get to Babylon, the city had to be destroyed? And so what Daniel is doing is praying towards a city that's been destroyed. You say, how is that confident? Well, because what he is doing, he is praying under the understanding that the city is in ruin, but one day God will restore it. And so he's praying towards the place that will one day be restored, confident that God is going to fulfill his plan. He prays to a God who is able to accomplish and to do what he is all about. You see, prayer is about seeing beyond your circumstance. If he were to look at his circumstance, he's in big trouble. The water is hot up to here. But instead, he looks beyond his circumstances to what God is able to accomplish in the future. And he confidently goes to him in prayer. He's looking into the face of a holy, just, sovereign, good God. And he goes to him in prayer. Uh, prayer is all about seeing God and being confident in the prayer, being confident in who we're speaking to. Uh, we have that confidence because of what God has done for us in our salvation. Uh, you may have uh, heard the song before. It's uh, Have a Little Talk with Jesus. The first verse goes like this, I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. And then a little light from heaven filled my soul. He bathed my heart in love and wrote my name above. And just a little talk with Jesus made me whole. What we do when we go to prayer, we're confident because we know what God has done. If you are a child of God, you have all experienced the marvelous transformation that has come at the cross. When we go to the cross, we see our need. When we go to the cross, we see the fulfillment of that need. We see a God who has paid for our sins, who has delivered power over our sins. And so when we go to prayer, we are praying to that God, a God we are confident in accomplishing things. The chorus of that little song goes like this. Now let us have a little talk with Jesus let him tell us all about, let us tell him all about our troubles. He will hear our faintest cry and we will answer by and by. Now when you feel a little prayer wheel turning, you'll know a little fire is burning, you'll find a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Daniel, in crisis, needing to breathe, goes to God confidently in prayer. The second aspect of Daniel's prayer is it was habitual. He prayed habitually. Notice in verse 10 what it says. 
It says, now Daniel learned that the decree had been published. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Three times a day, just as he had done before. Daniel did not hear about the crisis and say, I better pray. Instead, this is what his habit was. This is what his life was marked by. His life was marked by prayer. Now, there is nothing wrong with that prayer of desperation. That happens. We know that that is true. But Daniel's is not out of desperation. His is out of habit. In verse 10, it says three times a day. In verse 13, it says still praying. The guys walk in and they see Daniel still praying. In verse 16 of chapter 6, Darius, Darius says, the God who you continually serve. This is not anything new for Daniel, this prayer life. This is a habitual thing. You see, the plan was to catch Daniel doing what he always does, and that's pray. This is not a prayer in defiance of the king. You know, sometimes we would love that picture, right? This image of Daniel standing up and saying, I will do what I want to do instead of what this king wants to do. It's not like that. He's always prayed. He always prays. This is part of what he does. It is an aspect of his life. Pastor Alistair Begg, who has a radio show called Truth for Life, says this. He says, crisis revealed the prayer life of Daniel. Crisis did not create the prayer life of Daniel. You see, prayer is to the spiritual life what breathing is to your physical life. Do you remember, uh, my son is 21, my youngest son is 21, I have a 33-year-old son, but I still vividly remember the delivery room. And in that moment, when the contraction hits, you remember what it was like, uh, the nurse or the doctor, what are they saying to the, the person about to deliver? Breathe, right? Just breathe. And I remember that. And, and my wife is not um, big by any measure, but I remember taking her hand during one of the contractions, and I almost lost three fingers, right, during the contractions. But they said, breathe. It became a habit for her. It became something she wanted to do. We sometimes forget that, don't we? In the moments of crisis, we forget and we think, well, I better rise up and do this. But instead, let's create this habit of prayer so that when the crisis comes, we are able to just naturally breathe or pray and talk to God. The first aspect is confident in prayer. Daniel prayed confidently. The second aspect is he prayed habitually. Nothing new. This is part of what he does. Prayer was a part of who he was. The third aspect of prayer is reverently. He pray, prayed reverently. In verse 10, it says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. He got down on his knees and gave thanks. He prayed reverently. He prayed reverently. Now, we've, we've talked about these things before. I, I, I preached a message. I don't know if you remember when Jeff uh, did the dog rescue. Uh, that was years ago. And I, I, I shared a couple of these things then. But here, are, sometimes, instead of praying reverently, we play, pray defiantly, like, like Saul. Remember Saul? King Saul would not wait for Samuel to get there to light the offering. And so Saul lit the offering himself. He says, I, I can do this. We, sometimes that, that's how we pray. We pray divinely. Okay, God, I'm talking to you, but I got this. I'll, I'll do this myself. 
Sometimes instead of reverently, we pray militantly, like the, the prodigal son. The younger son said to the father, give me, give me what I deserve. What's mine? Give it to me. That's praying militantly. Uh, God doesn't want us to pray like that. He wants us to pray reverently, not defiantly, not militantly. You see, in prayer, we do the same thing as we do in approaching God with our salvation. Do you remember in salvation, we cry out to God for salvation to save us because we need him to do that. So in prayer, it's the same thing where we cry out to God and we ask him to take care of us. We pray disappointedly. Remember Jonah? Jonah prayed and said to God, okay, fine, I'll go. And he goes to Nineveh, great revival breaks out. And then what did he do? He went up on the mountain to look down on Nineveh because what had God said he would do? Destroy Nineveh. And what happens when he didn't destroy Nineveh? Jonah's like, oh, <laughs> well, that's real great. Why aren't, we, why aren't we destroying Nineveh? And sometimes that's how we pray. We're disappointed. God didn't do it the way I wanted him to do it. And so we're disappointed. Well, Daniel says, you know what? We pray as a child to his father. We go to God reverently. Uh, Daniel went on bended knee. Uh, the apostle Paul talks about, I kneel before the father because he knew he was his son. Uh, his whole idea of reverence. We need to know what the father is all about. And as a result of knowing who God is and what he can do, we are reverent in our position and in our place before him in prayer. The text says that Daniel got down on his knees. Now, there are some days if I got down on my knees, I'd never get back up. <laughs> so the position is not what he's talking about. It's the heart, right? I mean, think about Jesus. He prayed when he was on the cross. He prayed, you know, into, my, into your hands I commend my spirit. He prayed to take the soul of the, the one thief into heaven. So he prayed outstretched on the cross. Remember Peter, Peter was neck high in water. And what was his prayer? Lord, save me. He didn't take a moment to kneel. If he would have kneeled, he would have gone even deeper. So the position that we're talking about here is the position of your heart the worshipful position of your heart, the humility in prayer where we are demanding nothing, where we are asking for everything. He is our father. He can accomplish so much. The author Warren Worsby said this. He says, prayer should translate spiritual position into practical living. Praying reverently. Praying reverently. Now the thing about it is it's very, very interesting in the Bible. There's all kinds of group prayers, individual prayers, group prayers. Remember when Peter was in prison, they all got together and they were praying. Peter was delivered by the angel and Peter's knocking on the door of the house and uh, Rhoda comes to the door and she opens the door and she's like, no, you can't be Peter. We're praying for you. She shuts the door and goes back in. Remember that? We pray in a group, but it's all about position and reverence. We pray in crisis, the thief on the cross, begging for his soul to be saved. We pray, we pray, we pray but we pray reverently. We need to reverently approach God. Sometimes I, I, I wonder if the reason why we have lost the reverence is because we have forgotten how big God is, right? Do you remember the, the kid's song? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There is nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There is nothing my God cannot do. 
The mountains are his, the rivers are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. I think sometimes we forget how great God is. We forget how he is beyond us. He is awesome. He is fearsome. We forget that he is the one that has created the world. He is the one that has brought existence into being. We forget how marvelous it is and that it is awe-inspiring to go to that God in prayer. Sometimes we want so badly for God to just be our buddy, (laughs) to be our pal. But that's not the way that it works. The way that it works is he is awesome and fearsome. Remember David, he uses these words. He says, he is my strength, my righteousness, my refuge, my glory, my rock, my fortress. That's how he describes God. Daniel, they, they, they caught him, remember, in verse 10, it says that they caught him praying and asking God for help. Because Daniel saw God as this big, awesome, fearsome God. You say, well, you've just painted this picture of God that makes him so scary. I just don't know what I'm going to do. Here, this is what you're going to do. Let me tell you this story. You remember Abraham Lincoln had a son named Tad Lincoln. Tadpole was his nickname. The reason they called him Tadpole is because when he was a baby, he had a big head and a small body. So Abraham Lincoln called him Tad. And one time, uh, Tad Lincoln was outside the White House, and uh, there was a soldier that was crying and upset because he wanted leave to go see his mother who was dying. Tad Lincoln was seven or eight years old. He reached over and took the soldier by the hand and walked him right into the office of the president of the United States and said, dad, this guy needs to go see his mother. And Lincoln signed off on it and off he went. Now think about that soldier. If he would have attempted to go into the presence of the president of the United States on his own, he would have been stopped and prevented from going in because it's the president of the United States, right? Well, let me tell you, this awesome, fearsome, awe-inspiring God gave us his son who died on the cross for you. And because he died on the cross, he walks over to you and he says, you have a problem here, let's go. And he takes you right into the presence of God and you have nothing to be afraid of because you're there with Jesus Christ. So please, this morning, don't be afraid of the big scary God. Instead, embrace the son who can take you into the presence of that God and have the needs of your life met because he's so all powerful and so magnificent. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, we have access to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning, we are reverently approaching God. He is the one to whom we pray. We are confident. It is a habit. It is reverent. And look at the fourth thing, also in verse 10 of chapter 6. Daniel says this, or this, this is said about Daniel. It says, he is giving thanks to God giving thanks to God. The fourth aspect of Daniel's prayer is adoringly. He prays adoringly. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Daniel, what are you doing? How about this? Deliver me, God. How about that? (laughs) You are about to be thrown into the lion's den. 
But instead, he prays adoringly. Thank you, God, for all you've done. Thank you for all you have accomplished. Wait, Daniel, you're still in exile. You're not in Jerusalem. Well, let's go all the way back to the first point where he's praying confidently facing Jerusalem because he knows that God will deliver him, that God will someday rescue him to the place where he needs to be. He he does not allow his circumstances or his earth-bound condition to limit him from understanding that God is able to accomplish so much more than what this simple decree is going to try to accomplish. There is this sense where he is adoring God and asking him for help and saying, this is my plight in life and I accept it. Now, sometimes people make a big deal. It says, you know, the the east windows, he's facing the east, the windows are open and people make a big deal where, what's Daniel doing, showing off? No, that was an architectural design of the east. The windows were high because of the heat, right? The heat escapes through the top. And the windows were high because of thieves. People would crawl in your house. So it has nothing to do with Daniel trying to put on a show. Because Daniel, when he went to prayer, it was not about Daniel. It was about God. He went there adoring him, thanking him, praising him for what it is that he was about to accomplish and do in his life. And how he was about to marvelously rescue him in some way or another. Drop, if you would, to verse 16. In verse 16, it says, So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. Remember, they saw him, they caught him, they go to Darius and said, This is what you said, you can't change it, the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And so Darius said, You're right, and they threw him into the lion's den. How ironic is it in verse 16 that the king violates his own command? In verse 16, it says, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. That's a prayer to another God. (laughs) You see, this life that Daniel was living had left such an impression on those in leadership that even in the moment when they needed to stand up, they couldn't. They capitulated to Daniel's God. Daniel brought to the lion's den. Do you notice these words are not there? Kicking and screaming. (laughs) Daniel is not saying, I'm innocent. What are you thinking? What are you doing? Instead, they took him and they threw him. Verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Verse verse 18, then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. I wonder why. Because he knows he's getting rid of a good man. Daniel went into the lion's den knowing this. God would take care of him. You say, did he know he would be rescued? That's not what I'm saying. I think all that Daniel knew is that God would take care of him. And if that meant being devoured by the lion, that would be okay. Because what happens if he's devoured by the lion? Glory. What happens if he's rescued and the lions don't eat him? He goes on about his life. So I think when Daniel went into the lion's den, his prayer was a prayer of thanksgiving and saying, God, I know whatever it is that you want, you will accomplish. What a marvelous way to pray. Praying, asking God to do what he wants to do. 
instead of doing what I want you to do. Uh, Daniel, uh, of course, you know the story. Daniel is delivered and he comes out of there. And the thing that makes it so interesting is that Daniel is, is rescued and then the others were taken and thrown into the lion's den, right? And what happens as soon as they land in the lion's den? They're devoured immediately. Uh, Josephus, in one of the accounts that he writes about this historical setting, he says that the king fed the lions first and then fed these guys to him just to make sure that they were kind of in the mood to eat. And so uh, these guys end up happening what, what they wanted Daniel to happen. Daniel is delivered. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes God's decree is different. If you want something to read this afternoon, you should read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 38. And it will tell you all about the times where these guys who led a life that pleased God weren't delivered. Isaiah being cut in half in a tree and others, and you can read about that. So it's not always where God delivers. The point is we are praying so that we can confidently move into the positions and the places where God wants us to be. We are able to breathe because we are able to be satisfied with what it is that God is going to accomplish and do. We are content with his plan and his way of doing things. Sometimes we just don't pray, do we? Sometimes we don't pray because nothing sensational happens. I want to pray like Elijah. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophets of Baal challenge him to a burn off. <laughs> Remember that? And those prophets of Baal, they're cutting themselves and pleading and all this kind of thing. And Elijah's over there. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's asleep. Talk louder. <laughs> and then he says, okay, it's my turn. He digs the trench, he covers it with water, he buries that thing, floods it, looks to God in prayer, and the fire consumes everything, including the altar and all of the water that was around it. If God answers prayer like that every time, I'm in. Next time my neighbor parks in front of my house, <laughs> his car is gone, right? <laughs> Sometimes that's why we don't pray, because there's nothing sensational that happens. Or sometimes we, we don't pray because we don't get our way. I have a very dear friend, and he has turned his back completely on God. And in conversation, the reason is God doesn't answer prayer. And then when you begin to burrow down into it, and ask, what do you mean he doesn't answer prayer? Well, and then he lists these things that he's wanted. And it's that aha moment when someone says something out loud and they constantly use the word I instead of God. And then you begin to realize that sometimes people don't pray because they aren't getting what they want. James addresses that, doesn't he? James says, often your prayer is not answered because you ask it wrong. You're asking to consume it for your own self instead of for God. We don't pray because we don't, we don't get our answer. And sometimes we don't pray 
because we're afraid we might be the answer to that prayer. Uh, We don't want to pray because God might say, okay, you're the person. You know, instead it's easier. You know, Lord, you need to change my wife. (laughs) She needs to be different. (laughs) Instead of me, maybe I need to be different. There are all kinds of reasons that we don't pray but we need to wait for the Lord for what it is that he can do in our lives. And we uh, enter into that waiting actively through prayer. We We don't wait passively. We wait actively praying that God's will be done and accomplished in our lives. I lived in Wisconsin for two years. I lived in a place, if you get to Madison, Wisconsin and drive four hours north of Madison, that's where I lived. The, The one winter we had 300 inches of snow. And I had to drive along this one little road to get to my job and the school where I was working. And uh, the first snow, I like had never driven in it very well. So I went too fast. And of course, what did I do? I hit the brake instead of just slowing down and off I go into the ditch. One of the teachers from the school came by in a big SUV, hooks me up to a chain, pulls me out, no problem. I didn't get that the first time. So the second time happens again, snow. What do I do? Hit the brake into the bank. The guy drives by again, same guy, throws out the rope, ties it to my car, pulls it out. He rolls down his window and he says, hey, you might want to slow down just a little bit. And he says, don't hit the brakes. All right, fine. So then we have snow. And by this time, you know, they don't, they don't uh, plow snow in where, where I lived. They blew it. You know, they had these big blowers and blow big mountains of snow on the side. So I'm driving again and hit the brakes and into the bank. The guy drives by, doesn't say anything, just throws the rope out the window, ties it to my car and pulls me out. That's what happens, isn't it, sometimes? Instead of us just waiting for what it is that God wants, we hit the brakes. Because my plan is going to be better. I'm not going to wait. Think about Abraham. Remember Abraham? He and Sarah, what were they told? You're going to have a baby you're going to have thousands of kids, more than the stars in the sky. And Sarah and Abraham are like, we're too old for this. And Sarah goes to Hagar and says, Hagar, here, you sleep with Abraham. Let's have kids. He hit the brakes. And you see how that worked out. You see, prayer is about waiting actively to do what it is that God wants us to do. You see, in emergencies, we want God to hear our voice and say, welcome back. It's good to hear from you. We don't want God to say, wait, who are you? (laughs) Who is this praying? You see, the prayer that that Daniel was used to doing was a prayer that was confident in what God would would accomplish. He he was uh, habitual in that practice of prayer. He was very reverent in his approach in prayer. This wasn't something new to Daniel. This was a life that he lived, a lifestyle that he chose, prayer that was breathing and doing it often. When I was in high school, I played uh, basketball. And uh, one game, we were playing a team that we uh, were winning. There was about 30 seconds left in the game, and I got fouled. And I went to the foul line, and I wasn't a primary person, so it's unusual for me to be at the foul line. I'm at the foul line with about 30 seconds to go in the game. We're winning by one point. The referee walks over, and it was a one and one. Remember those? You make one, you get one, okay? And uh, I played uh, basketball uh, before the three-point shot, 
but after the peach basket. So it was, uh, wasn't, we weren't getting the ball out of the peach basket, but there was no three-point line. So the official walks up to me, and I remember I'm standing there, and he walks over, and he hands me the ball, and he goes, hmm. He says, you make this, it's probably over. Just like that. <laughs> and I remember, have you heard the expression bricking? You brick it, you know, the shot, it's a brick. Well, when my shot went up and hit the backboard, I swear mortar flew off of the ball. That's how bad it was. I mean, I literally here, you know how the hoop is here and there's that, the backboard piece. To, I literally hit the backboard with the ball on my shot. That's how bad it was. Uh, after the game, you know, we ended up losing because uh, the rebound went to them. They went down, scored, game was over. After the game, uh, a guy said to me, he says, hey, meet me tomorrow in the gym. I said, okay. So we went to the gym the next morning and we went and he said, this is what you need to learn. He said, you need to learn how to breathe. He said, when you get the ball at the foul line, he said, you just take it. He said, take a deep breath and then shoot your free throw. Sometimes that's what we need, isn't it? We just need to stop, take the ball and say, Lord, I'm yours. Whatever it is you have for me, I'm ready for. And then just go for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love that gave us your son, that permitted us to come into your presence and to receive the blessings that are yours. Lord, we ask that as we leave this place, that we would not forget about the music, the songs that reminded us of your power, and that we not forget the words of Scripture that remind us to pray and to be dependent upon you who can accomplish so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.